When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shade. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with this is your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah, so who are we talking about today, Matt? Acetylcholine neurons fire high-voltage impulses into the forebrain. These impulses become pictures. The pictures become dreams. But no one knows why we choose these particular pictures. Viewers, buyers, sellers, fans, zealots, junkies, consumers, droning on through life, ever wondering what is next, never wondering whose story Whose narrative, whose messaging, whose agenda, who's programming them to view, buy, sell, fawning with zeal, junking their minds, recycling, consume waste, consume waste, consume waste. Stop, think, listen. What you are about to learn is a secret. Many of those Grub Street publishers on TikTok won't tell you that some movies are meant to ensnare you and others are meant to empower you. Choose wisely what you spend time with. And like a true cinema sleuth, today's guest has a hot scoop on a gang of highbrow mobster types, real Hollywood high society. But wait, there's more. We also discuss a new book sure to expose this corrupt videodrome. Titled The Art, Book One, The Secret History of Psywar, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality. 
by S. William Snyder, otherwise known as today's guest, returning to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. The great recluse joins me, Mystic Mark, here to discuss all of this and so much more. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Recluse. conspiracy theories it's a very effective way of implementing what naomi klein referred to as the shock doctrine essentially um she believes that the united states had started to apply the techniques of mk ultra to a societal wide level where you're trying to put somebody into a fugue state so that you can re-imprint their consciousness only that it can be done at a societal level and i think that you see something like that happening with a lot of these groups All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Fix Some Crazy podcast, and you heard the intro. My man, Steve Snyder, is back again. This is his fourth appearance here on the My Family Fix Some Crazy podcast. You know him from The Farm Mach 2. He is an author, an investigative journalist, and his latest book is linked in the description. We're going to talk about that towards the end of the show, hopefully. We'll get a little brief intro on his latest book. But Stephen, you are a busy boy. You've been working real hard. you got some excellent work out there for people to follow up on. And today's a little bit more of a fun sort of topic. Maybe towards the end of the episode, my opinion will change. Because Twin Peaks is a very interesting and dark topic that we're going to be exploring today. But before we talk about Twin Peaks, folks should know you. Uh, you've been on the show before. Introduce yourself briefly and then tell us a little bit about how you got into the Albacore mystery. How did that first pique your interest? Well, I've been doing research in this stuff for, um, gosh, good, well over 10 years. I started my blog Visa back in 2010. Uh, and that was sort of like the first thing I was really doing. It was very influenced by the early synchromystical movement, especially uh, Briggers Institute that Jeff Wells did. And of course, Chris Knowles' Secret Sun blog. I stuck with that for years and years. I finally started doing the Farm Podcast around 2019. And that was also around the time I started putting together my first book, which I think came out the following year, Strange Tales of the Parapolitical. So, yeah, fast forward, uh, the farm is still going, and I've had two additional books since then, A Special Relationship, Trump Epstein, The Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment, and the most recent one, which is called The Art, The Secret History of Cyborg, Conspiratainment, and The Shattering Reality. So it's been quite a ride working on all this kind of stuff. As for the Albacorp mystery series, which is a series of shows that I did on the farm, that was really inspired by... Uh, when I had started revisiting Chinatown, which was one of my favorite movies as a kid, I've always been really taken with private detective movies. And I had noticed how uh, this time in reviewing it, there were all these references to sort of the secret society that they referred to as the Albacore Club, uh, which I became intrigued by because it's something that you really don't, that your attention really isn't drawn to when you're watching Chinatown. It's only sort of like when you go back and rewatch it, you kind of notice symbols for the group and stuff like that that are kind of randomly placed in various scenes. Uh, so I started to wonder, well, what was this group? 
So I began researching the making of Chinatown. I found out that uh, Robert Town, the screenwriter, was really the main visionary behind the concept of the albacore mystery. And he had, in fact, based it on a real group uh, known as Tuna Club of Avalon, which is based out of uh, the Santa Catalina Island, uh, which is approximately 26 miles off the coast of L.A. It was a really big deal back in the early days of Hollywood. A lot of uh, the first motion pictures in L.A. were actually filmed in Santa Catalina because of the climate there. You could sort of do like the beach stuff, you know, like out in the shore. But when you get into the interior of the island, it's almost like a desert, right? So they were able to shoot a fair amount of westerns in some parts of it. And then in other parts where we're more kind of conventional island habitat, you could do like jungle stuff and things of that nature. So since you couldn't really move around in these days, this is the silent film era, like 19 teens, 1920s. It wasn't really practical to move crews all over the world like it is in this day. And obviously there's no CGI. So having a location like that that could stand in for a lot of different climates was highly advantageous. So you ended up with a fair amount of actors in the Tuna Club, along with a lot of these other VIPs and so forth. And the more I started looking into it, I saw that they had played a significant role in really establishing L.A. as a major beachhead. This kind of goes into the whole, uh, you know, water wars saga that played out in the teens and the 20s with William Muhammad or Maholland and Fred Eaton, the former mayor of um of L.A. This is, you know, a big part of the plot line of Chinatown itself was the whole scheme where they built the Owens Dam and effectively LA was able to get you know all these gallons of water transported some 200 miles or something and it created a lot of controversy around that so it was really intriguing and uh, the more I had started to look into the Tuna Club I kept finding traces of it throughout a lot of the early history of Hollywood and it got to the point where I started to wonder if certain filmmakers uh, were kind of covertly inserting references to this history into their films. I mean, it was obviously really, uh, you know, quite evident with Robert Town and Chinatown, but I also became convinced that David Lynch, for instance, uh, was also doing this with some of his films. And certainly there were probably other movies um, from an earlier time frame. Uh, Sunset Boulevard is actually one I think is really big in all of this and mm-hmm. also happens to be one of David Lynch's favorite movies as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of uh, interesting stuff with that whole saga, and it's uh, something that I'm hoping to start revisiting here in the very near future. Yeah, I'm excited about that. There are other movies that mentioned the Albacore Club or the Tuna Club of Avalon, as they're more properly uh, identified. Now, do you think it's the case where these directors are outsiders exposing the maybe the insiders of Hollywood? Or do you think these directors that are putting these clues about the Tuna Club in their films, do you think they're sort of in the fold, hence why they're using this symbolism? Is that something that you've even made an assumption or a guess about is there any way of knowing well i mean i think at least in the early years they were all in on the thing so to speak i mean when you really get down to it hollywood is basically an extension of organized crime okay so on the one hand it's used as a massive money laundering vehicle for a variety of things because again for years and years you took a lot of the proceeds and in cash at the theaters and all kinds of stuff like that so there was any number of ways you could cook the books there claim that you were getting money or the films were grossing figures that they weren't actually doing based on what audiences were spending on it and most likely this probably still continues to this day i mean we hear all these reports about you know like the second avatar movie 
breaking all of these box office records. And yet when you go online and, you know, read these reviews of uh, critics who actually went there to see it, it's like one person in the theater with them or something like that. So you know, where's all this money coming from? Right. But the other thing about this, and this is where I have to believe firmly that the filmmakers were in on it, is the role that Hollywood played in blackmail. Uh, there was a very prominent silent film director who was a part of the Tuna Club who founded uh, one of the earliest and most influential studios in Hollywood. It was known as Keystone. It's where we get the good old Keystone cops from. This guy also was really fond of doing these things called bathing beauties as well, which were sort of the early version of centerfolds. Uh, he also, at least according to Kenneth Anger, was the man who developed the whole concept of the Hollywood casting couch. Basically, the women who wanted to be involved in these bathing beauty spreads had to sleep with him in order to get the gig for that. And who knows, perhaps some of this was maybe filmed as well, you know, going into the future. If, say, some of these actresses did become prevalent and some of them did, like uh, Gloria Swanson, for instance, who starred in Sunset Boulevard and briefly had an affair with Joseph P. Kennedy, Jack's dad. So, you know, maybe there's a little bit of uh, old footage sitting around of her going back to the days of the bathing beauties. I don't know that for sure, but there were several other actresses who were connected to the studio who later turned up in schemes to uh, basically run honeypots and sexually blackmail people. It's entirely possible this is what happened with Fatty Arbuckle, for instance, the whole scandal with, um, what's her name, Virginia Rappay, or um, uh, I think that's how it's pronounced, the woman he was accused of murdering uh, with his girth. Uh, and potentially this goes in all the way to the William Desmond Taylor murder, uh, which also seems to have been involved in a blackmail ring that was extorting Hollywood players. Again, I don't know if any of this was ever filmed, but there have been rumors from pretty much the beginning of Hollywood that porn was a big part of it, that there was a lot of this being done with many of the prominent players on the sides. And my suspicion is that from practically the very beginning, they were using film to record some of these actresses with some of these VIPs, which is, again, why it's very intriguing that this particular director was a member of the Tuna Club from early on, was over there in the Catalina Island with some of these other characters, people like Charlie Chaplin, for instance, who got his break working at Keystone and who, I believe, of his four wives, only one of them was of legal age when he married, or excuse me, uh, consummated the relationship with them. Mm. So there's a lot of uh, very dark stuff kind of floating around with all of this. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, where Hollywood sits in the larger, larger cultural movement that took place in the United States, obviously the, the East Coast was more established. You have groups like the Boston Brahmins, the old Philadelphians, the 400 Club in New York City is the tuna club of avalon akin to this sort of upper crust higher class kind of society or are they just maybe more understood as a mafia type of art movement mafia crime because people nowadays we don't really associate theater necessarily with film but that's really what the camera did was it gave these folks with the ability to create films the the means to put the spotlight on certain stories certain myths certain theatrical plays that had you know for the most part been something that was 
relegated to people who are well off, right? This was something that really uh, was a you know theaters and plays. This wasn't something the common man was participating in. But now with movies, anyone can go and hypothetically to see these. Well, yes and no. I mean, obviously, the theater itself was more prestigious, but you've also got to remember vaudeville was huge during this whole era in the late 19th, early 20th century, and that was very much a popular form of entertainment, and probably vaudeville was more what Hollywood grew out of directly Mm. than the theatrical circles. A lot of the early members had started out working in the vaudeville circuits, you know, in the West and these cowboy towns and things like that, you know, it's sort of like this trap straddling God stage show with performers. It was almost like maybe an indoor circus or something like that, if you will. Uh, But you already had a lot of famous players from that whole circuit with vaudeville going into the early days of Hollywood. And even back then there were certainly indications that um, there were things amiss. I, I can't remember the name of the organization, but there was pretty much like a whole group that was founded in the late 19th century to enforce uh, child child labor laws in vaudeville because essentially they were getting a lot of these kids especially women when they were still I shouldn't say women girls when they were still preteens and bring them up there on the stage and using them in these performances and once again well um a lot of times this stuff went hand in hand with prostitution so we can really only imagine what was going on with some of these girls especially you can get into places like say butte montana or some of these more harsher western towns that these uh, circuits would have gone to inevitably so there was already that sort of component i think of a criminal element mm-hmm. in this even before hollywood was established uh, but in terms of the Tuna Club, it very much grew out of this tradition of elite secret societies, which you can sort of track the current, uh, the progression westward. You know, so you end up with something like, say, um, uh, the Bohemian Club, or no, excuse me, Skull and Bones, which is something that you've been looking at a lot. You can find members that were connected to Skull and Bones going into the Bohemian Grove, uh, Bohemian Club in San Francisco. And there seems to have been a continuation with that down into L.A. with the Tuna Club. Um, I think it was Henry Huntington, for instance, who was a member of both um uh, Bohemian Grove and the Tuna Club of Avalon, if I remember correctly. Uh, but again, I'm sure as you well know, the Huntington family has been real well represented in Skull and Bones for many years. Of course, um, what's his name? William uh, Huntington Russell, I think, uh, was a member of that family. He was one of the co-founders of Skull and Bones with Taft. So you can kind of track the progression of these families as they were moving out west. And frequently they would continue establishing these sort of elites fraternities or gentlemen's clubs or whatever you want to call them um, uh, in a lot of the major centers that they ended up at. So I see Tuna Club as kind of a continuation of that tradition, but it did bring in a lot of these uh, kind of theatrical types in Hollywood as well, which I think kind of points to it as being this sort of massive crime syndicate. I mean, again, the Blue Bloods were a crime syndicate as much as anybody else. I mean, Jesus, most of Skull and Bones was based off the opium trade, for instance. I mean, all those families were big in that. Right. It's just that, uh, you know, they wore suits and ties, so we didn't automatically think of them as being a crime syndicate, but that was basically what it was. Yeah, well, and that's this really... I'm glad I asked about the theater and to get your clarification on vaudeville, because it really is so underworld it's this criminal sort of just 
it's it's something that and maybe I'm only speaking to you know my own biases as growing up in New England but you at least for me I had this impression that okay well people who or were told that are very wealthy you know they follow the rules they do what's right and that's why they're so successful cuz they've been rewarded for all their good honest hard work and it's when you really look into it it's completely the opposite there's this back door from the upper class to the underworld where yeah criminal gangs and these secret societies are essentially side by side they're they're all participating in you know this uh this really seedy affair and that's partly you know what leads me to ask you you know is are movies like this do you see them as a sort of exhibitionism where criminals are flaunting what's going on in their secret worlds on the screen for us to be confused and boggled by these these movies that kind of hint little clues here like like if if these are criminals they're operating in secret what what motivates them to expose it on t- on in movies if that makes any sense well i mean i think that you know you have to sort of look at this as a bit of like a gamemanship for them and also kind of this sense of i guess macabre humor that a lot of times they seem to display because you will encounter certain movies, especially ones centered more around L.A., where they'll throw up references to this uh, in the, you know, kind of with the assumption that whoever's watching this among the general public is going to have no idea what they're getting at with this. Um, but again, you know, like an early example of this of a movie, I think that really has a lot of this kind of name dropping in. It was Sunset Boulevard from 1950. Of course, um, Gloria Swanson stars in this is Norma Desmond, this kind of fading silent film star who's going gradually insane. And she ensnares this young screenwriter, William Holden, to work on this uh, project that's never going to be realized at all. Uh, but essentially, it's an excuse for her to keep him in his mansion and have an affair with him. And this uh, ends up resulting in tragedy. But throughout this, I mean, you know, she wants to make this movie with Cecil B. DeMille, who actually appears as himself in the movie. Uh, DeMille was a member of the Tuna Club of Avalon, had been for many years. Um, another guy who makes a brief cameo appearance in it was Buster Keaton, an early silent film star. He was actually a very close friend of Fatty Arbuckles, the uh, guy I was just mentioning who was involved in that kind of early murder scandal in San Francisco. Um, the name of Gloria Swanson's character, Norma Desmond, as a play on two separate names, Mabel Norman, who was the longtime mistress of the director I just mentioned, who owned Keystone and uh, was a good friend of Fatty Arbuckles and a lot of these other characters and who turns up in several murder investigations. And then on the other hand, Desmond, that's a reference to William Desmond Taylor, the uh, director who was murdered in 1922 in Hollywood, which is, again, the um, center of a lot of speculation, had been for years. Um, You can look at, say, the younger woman who is... um, the love interest from William Holden besides Gloria Swanson. I can't remember the actress's name who played her, but her character's name is Betty Shaver. So this seems to clearly be a play on the Black Dahlia. The Black Dahlia's real name was Elizabeth Short, but everybody referred to her as Elizabeth uh, Betty Short. So you've got Betty Short, Betty Shaver, and they even throw in a direct reference to the Black Dahlia in the film for good measure. So it kind of seems like there have been movies from fairly early on 
where they are hinting at this dark underbelly at Hollywood and potentially, you know, for lack of a better term, these highly ritualistic murders that happened there during the early days of uh, Hollywood itself. So there definitely seems like there's something going on with that. But again, if you maybe subscribe to this being a form of magic, I almost wonder at times if some of these movies are a kind of working in that sense, but the fact that they're bringing a lot of these kind of taboo subjects to the attention of the public and I guess kind of bypassing the conscious mind and almost implanting them on us subconsciously. Mm-hmm. It's like we're kind of aware of this murky underbelly of Hollywood, but nobody is really able to verbalize it or really uh, come forward into the open and kind of sketch it out, even though it's continuously hinted at in certain movies. Right, right. And with conversations uh, that I've had with Miguel Connor and Chris Knowles, both peers of yours, in mind lately, you know, we talked about Elvis Presley and how he represents this great alchemy or this transformation of America from a more tight, reserved, maybe conservative is the right word for it, to looser and less uh, dogmatic kind of thinking towards things like sex and and, uh, even drugs, which has completely morphed in just the past 40 years as chris nolson and i talked about on his uh late latest kick the 1983 to 2023 transformation which everything from the internet to cell phones and all the stuff that was born out of that so clearly if we want to think in these terms there has been a, a great deal of transformation that's occurred just here in america now that may be something that's indicative of any era right like 200 years ago people might have looked back at their past 100 years and said look how much has changed right and i'm sure that's a symptom of just being alive in any modern time but when it comes to uh to movies and film there's an overwhelming sense of this sort of conformity behind the scenes which is why i asked you know, whether you think these directors are in on it or not. And with that in mind, have you identified any films where you think maybe the director was putting something out that maybe went too far and exposed too much? There was a film that you recommended I watch. Oh, you mean Society? Yes, Society. Because that film, it seemed to me like it went a little bit over the edge of what I've seen other movies in this respect do with exposing things that again show this darker side of hollywood well yeah i mean i think especially when you get into some of like the low budget filmmaking you will see a lot of these kind of interesting subplots that come up in it especially like a lot of horror and science fiction movies and that's kind of where i think the filmmakers might actually be genuinely trying to expose some of this stuff because a lot of them are operating on the cusp of hollywood They probably aren't insiders, but they've heard some rumors. I mean, who knows? Maybe they're they're directing these kind of B-grade order movies because they weren't willing to uh, make the sacrifices, so to speak, to get to the next level within Hollywood. But for whatever reason, it's just kind of it's been really strange to me to go back and look at some of these horror films and see some of the topics that show up in them. I mean... Just another example is even more kind of kooky would be like Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. You know, this is like the sixth movie in the franchise, obviously. You would think that this would be about as brain dead as you could possibly get. But it's got this elaborate plot centered around Michael Myers being a almost moon child produced by this druidic cult that's conditioned him to be this un 
uncontrollable, unstoppable killer that are operating out of a mental asylum in Haddonfield. The top man in the cult is actually also a psychiatrist. So, again, this kind of invokes all these possibilities with MK Ultra and all this other stuff. And you just kind of step back and you're wondering, like, why the fuck would they put this in a Halloween movie? And especially, like, the sixth film of the franchise or something. Mm. But there's a lot of movies out there like that. And I kind of feel like that is really the realm when you get into some stuff where there's maybe some real tales being told out of school, so to speak. Right, right. And that's part of the real fun. I'll be honest, I wrote off movies and all this stuff a few years ago just out of this kind of like, oh, well, I need to reframe my life around what makes sense to me. Cultural programming is programming me, so let me get it all out of my immediate view and, and focus on, you know, things like what's happening in my life. You know, what am I doing at work? What can I read in these books? You know, and, uh, from this reset, I'll call it my own personal reset, going back and, uh, looking into certain select films, especially the ones you've recommended. It's really opened my eyes to how valuable these films can be as teaching tools. You know, I, I, initially wrote it off as all just sort of mind control and there's a certain way to engage with this content where you might not learn anything and i wonder if that's a part of this desensitization that's taking place with things like slasher films and just brain dead plots and things that you know people maybe we can call it like bread and circus that concept right where people kind of get lulled into this stupor of non-questioning and maybe i was you know fallen victim to that too and it took a couple years of just not watching any film or or television to snap out of it and and really re-examine it do you have that same feeling when you when you engage with film or television do you feel like you're a sort of detective you know taking notes and looking for clues or or do you try to just you know engage with the the art and, and just sit with it uh, I mean, I usually try to go for the latter, but I end up sort of doing the former anyway, because that's just kind of the way that my mind works, if you will. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think when you get into like the really big box office spe- spectacles, especially in the last 10, 30 years or something like that, I mean, there is so much conditioning present in those films. I mean, obviously, there's always been a considerable uh, component of psychological warfare that's being engaged in it. Um, but I think when you do get into some of the lower budget stuff, I mean, that's where you possibly have the ability to pick up on something that's more genuine or pure. And yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff, you know, it's problematic on the one hand, because I mean, it is, you know, sometimes cases, these ultra violent slasher films and these kind of things where it could potentially have this kind of desensitization effect on the audience that you're suggesting, But conversely, I mean, I think that it's usually when you're working in those mediums that filmmakers have a greater degree of freedom in terms of the subjects that they can get into. Um, I mean, especially with a guy like, say, John Carpenter, you know, this is a dude who has a lot of subversive stuff in his material. And I think that he was really able to get away with this in part because, A, his movies were always successful by and large, I think, with the exception of Big Trouble in Little China, go figure. Um, But 
he also was able to do this stuff on a budget. So this guy is kind of a consistent cash cow. His movies aren't breaking the, um, you know, they're not breaking the bank for the studio and producing them, but they're also making a good return. And I think to some extent when you were in that, um, you know, that kind of soft spot like that, you could get away with doing certain stuff because again, you know, in this era, late eight, late eighties, early nineties, you know, who's going to take a horror director seriously as a guy who's giving, major social commentary in his films which is a pity because i mean frankly there probably are a lot more compelling messages in the average john carpenter west craven film from the 80s or 90s or 70s than what you will see in a lot of big oscar winners or something to that effect in fact it's it's kind of just an hysterical thing but when you go back and you look at like these movies that end up racking up all of these Oscars, these big kind of message movies. I mean, I'm thinking something like Brokeback Mountain or something like that. It's just so obvious that these things are a major part of forming this narrative mm. for the purposes of Psy War or something to that effect. Whereas when you get into a lot of these films that would be dismissed as this kind of, you know, low budget garbage culture, this kind of thing. I mean, that's actually where I think the real nuggets more often than not do reside in when it comes to films. Right. Right. And that, yeah, that is such a great point to make. And I agree with you and I didn't necessarily recognize it. And maybe that's what, uh, attributed to my, you know, just shooing away all media because there is that psy war element with a lot of what is incentivized for people to watch what people generally talk about at the water cooler i mean even you know the uh superhero films that i see you have the spandex files up there behind you and and we talked to to chris about that and yeah it's it's a whole you know realm for people that they put their imagination into without necessarily making the link to all these ancient concepts that have been, you know, fascinating humans for, for thousands of years. They don't necessarily put it together. Now, when it comes to the albacore mystery, let's reel it back into that because uh, it's not just Chinatown, but society also hints at the albacore um, club, right? They, they have some references to it. Are there any other films that are worth noting that have clear references to the albacore club well i don't know that there would be clear references but there's sort of some indirect references if you know the history and say like uh um the black dahlia or the other big adaptation of james elroy's novels la confidential uh obviously some of lynch's other movies lost highway mahala drive i would say are both uh very heavily influenced by some of this you know kind of murky history Uh, There's another one, too, from the 90s, Mulholland Falls, not Drive, but Falls. It was a Nick Nolte movie. Kind of gets into the whole hat squad in L.A., which is another interesting topic. Um, But that's one where I think you can kind of see hints of this netherworld. Uh, You've got earlier movies, like I said, like Sunset Boulevard and some to that effect. Um, I'm sure there are more movies. It's just kind of been like a gradual process for me as well as I've Mm. learned more about these subjects to go back and then rewatching certain other movies. And it's like, Oh, well this obviously seems like there was a reference to this or that thing. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. the hat club, that sounds interesting. I'd like to know more about that. If you could tell us about it. I, reason I ask is because I was just watching something about the mercury poisoning that occurred uh, in Danbury, Connecticut in mass, people were, you know, making these hats and uh, it was like 
um, mass drunkenness, all these people that were affected by, you know, average daily low doses of mercury. Sometimes it wasn't a low dose. I mean, eventually these people, they would lose their minds and go insane. And uh, some people were making the, the theory that, well, what if these hats were an early form of mind control where whoever, you know, invented it knew that the mercury was poisonous and that it would have this uh, sort of drunkenness uh, effect when worn. You know, it's an interesting thought. But who are, who are the hat, hat squad, as you called them? Yeah, the hat squad. Well, they were an unofficial group of detectives in L.A. I think there were like four of them, if I remember correctly. If I'm not mistaken, they were in Vice, but I'm not entirely sure about that. Uh, but they got the name because they were known for how they dressed up. They were very suave. Uh, they went out dressed to kill pretty much everywhere. I think they had like kind of an early sports car that they used to run around uh, in town and so forth as well. And then later, I want to say something like three of the four members of the Had Squad eventually became um, attorneys as well. Um, and even before then, they had put a lot of effort into studying the law. So they knew very very well like what they could and couldn't get away with what had to be disappeared all this other kind of stuff because essentially they did a lot of muscle work um there's been a lot of rumors for years that when uh the mob especially mickey cohen's people were being forced out of la during the 50s the hat squad were really the guys who were at the forefront of these efforts and then on top of that they were also driving out a lot of additional criminals who were coming into L.A. at the time. Uh, but this was before really the heyday of civil rights and what have you. So they could easily show up, rough somebody up, and give them an ultimatum of getting out of Los Angeles within 24 hours or so, or there might be consequences. Um, but, yeah, it gets into the whole sort of murky netherworld of just L.A., uh, the L.A. police force in general. Because when you go back and you look at a lot of these mysterious murders, right, where, I mean, a lot of times they'll even unfold in places where they had their own local police force. They should have called them or the L.A. County Sheriff's Office or something. But it ends up with the LAPD coming in and taking over the investigation. And again, you just sort of see these certain cops who show up in all these scandals time and again. I mean, I'm thinking of like Finnis Brown, for instance, whose brother was one of the lead investigators in the Black Dahlia, who had a lot of involvement in himself. And then later was a guy who was trying to leak evidence out about William Desmond Taylor and implicate certain people in that murder, some of his predecessors in um, um, what was it, the L.A. District Attorney's Office. So there's a lot of these kind of intrigues that were continuously playing out in the LAPD. And for that sense, at least, it's not surprising, I think, that you do see certain cops who show up time and again in a lot of these crimes as well. Mm. Um, it kind of begs the question, you know, just how much of this was also being, um, in terms of some of the criminal activity, the Tuna Club was engaged and how much of this was actually being covertly run by the LAPD on the side. Because there is just so much sketchy stuff with some of these cops, especially from kind of the quote unquote golden age. Right. Well, and I can imagine if you are a criminal element in a newly forming uh, state like California, you might have enough sway to get your own guys in the sheriff department or the you know create your own police department. Yeah, I, I can only imagine well, what sorts of corruptions are possible. People often think of that time in America as this kind of wild west with cowboys and whatnot and we really take for granted the fact that hollywood gave us this mythos of the wild west and i i realized 
from Walter Bosley's Empire of the Wheel book that there is far more um, occult goings ons in that day and age in that place, like uh, you know Crowley floating through there, and who I only can wonder who he was you know meeting up with uh, in California back in those days. But yeah, there is the whole Cora Stanton, um, you know, mysterious death, and a couple of other people that were associated with this these odd poisoning deaths, and Walter makes the. Uh, the the hypothesis that this was some sort of ritual that took place and i don't know if if they ever really um found out you know if these cold cases were ever solved so uh yeah very interesting stuff over there yeah i mean there's always been that sort of you know occultic element with this well i mean of course southern california was really the kind of ground zero in general for what we would think of as the new age movement. I mean, kind of going back from the, I think the late 19th century, you started to have a lot of theosophists show up there. Also a fair amount of spiritualists, but the theosophists were always well represented. And then getting into uh, the twenties uh, after William Dudley Paley had his what, seven minutes of eternity moment in 28, you started to have some of the silver shirts show up there. And then later the I am movement, which kind of effectively took over with the silver shirts. And there's even some indications that they kind of muscled the theosophists out of Southern California during that whole time frame as well. So, I mean, there's almost this, you know, kind of organized crime component to these esoteric groups that were inhabiting the region as well. And then there's, there's even more subtle stuff. I mean, from what I can tell, at least one of these prominent high schools uh, in the area there, um, had this whole festival where they would elect a girl to be the May Queen, essentially. And it was a big deal, right? I mean, um, I think it was Candace Bergen who was one of the winners of this. Um, actually, um, John Houston's wife, who ended up marrying George Adele, a popular suspect for the Black Dahlia killings, had also been elected the May Queen at one point. But you just sort of like encounter weird stuff like that, where it's like some of the local high schools are having these weird may day festivals i mean this is you know again this is back in the teens and the 20s when you know this kind of thing really was not i mean even to this day you know you don't really see a lot of celebrations for may day in the u.s but i mean going all the way back then it was extremely rare and i mean when you get into stuff like the may queen you know kind of inevitably brings to mind something like midsummer if you will you know it's a very peculiar thing mm, yeah so let's move away from the sunny southwest of America, Catalina Island. There's tons of interesting things about that. Uh, I'm sure the audience knows or has heard about the giant skeletons that were recovered there. There's all sorts of rumors about what that might entail. But David Lynch, he is from the Midwest, right? And Twin Peaks takes place sort of vaguely near the Canadian border, right? Is it is it in Washington, upstate? It's in Washington, Washington that yeah. it takes place, right? So it's in it's in the it's on the West Coast, but it has this kind of like mysterious feeling. And the reason I, I think of the Midwest is because we just had. Uh, someone you know as well, Jeff from Badgerland uh, Legends. He was on the show recently talking about the history of UFOs, and it's very odd how how 
Wisconsin has played such a large role in the history of UFOs. I mean, everything from MUFON to Raymond Palmer and some folks that were involved with Roswell all call Wisconsin home. So, yeah, what can we learn about maybe Lynch's work through his background, right? He's from the Midwest. I'm not entirely sure. I feel like it was maybe around the Dakotas that he grew up in, but again, I'm not entirely sure about that. I tended to follow his career more when he got into school, first kind of going to um, the University of uh, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, or no, excuse me, it was the art school that was near there. Uh, and then later, his involvement with the what was at the American Film Institute in California when he got the scholarship there that enabled him to do um, Eraserhead. But it seemed clear to me that there was definitely a pretty strong influence from his time in Philadelphia on his later works. I mean, of course, Philadelphia is just a really, really weird place. Um, of course, in the Twin Peaks series, um, that's actually... Uh, the FBI uh, station. It's in uh, Philadelphia where the Gordon Cole, who's the character that David Lynch plays in the series, is based out of. And it's where effectively they're running the so-called Blue Rose cases at the time of Fire Walk with me. And um, I definitely think there's a really pointed reason why he located that in Philadelphia, because that has been such a center of so much high weirdness. Of course, um, you know, the author, Russ Ben, I mean, he did the whole mystery Philadelphia thing and that kind of notion that the gates of hell had been opened up there. Um, yeah, I, I have to believe very strongly that Lynch was heavily influenced by his time there uh, and how it showed up in his later work. Um in terms of some other stuff in his background, um, as he was getting in his early filmmaking days, I think his relationship with Peter Ivers would also shape a lot of his uh, later dealings and some of his later works. Mm-hmm. And for those of you unaware, Peter Ivers is who did uh, the song, was it The Woman in the Radiator and Eraserhead? Um, obviously, that wasn't the only thing he had done. He had released two studio albums at that point, Um I think one was King of the Blue Communion, and then the other one was the Great Terminal Love album. Um, these are basically kind of like proto-new wave post-punk albums, so they were definitely commercial failures when they came out in 69 and 74, respectively. And he had really gotten into doing uh, soundtracks. In fact, he'd done like the soundtrack for Ron Howard's Grand Theft Auto and some other stuff by the late 70s. Um, he also had a lot of Hollywood connections. His uh, longtime girlfriend subsequently became a really big Hollywood player. Um, so he, besides his connections in the music scene, had definitely gotten around a lot. Also, he was a Harvard graduate. And during his time there, he basically hooked up with the whole National Lampoon's crowd like Doug Kenny and um, a few of these other guys. Eventually, he became pretty good friends with Harold Ramis and John Belushi, among others. So you kind of have this whole sort of comedy milieu circling around him as well. So in 1983, uh, he had, uh, by this point in time, he was hosting this public access show on Hollywood that had become really big. It was kind of like a proto version of MTV where they were bringing all of these punk bands in. It was called uh, No Wave Theater. So you brought all these punk bands in and it was kind of semi-recorded live. It was kind of an early VJ thing with Peter Ivers hosting it. 
And it had really blown up in the local area. I mean, it was a huge influence, not just on MTV, but also say like Rebo Man and some of the other films that were coming out from that era that had that, you know, kind of L.A. punk influence to them. This is basically what really put L.A. punk on the map. So in 1983, Ivers involved in all this. He's getting ready to leave No Wave Theater and um, he's brutally murdered at his apartment. Um, somebody broke in and essentially bashed his head in with like a baseball bat or something to that effect. And it remains unsolved. There's been a lot of speculation as to what who was behind it. He was living in Little Tokyo at the time, which was a very tough neighborhood. I think, in fact, I think it still is. But um, at this particular time, I mean, it's not in Skid Row, but you're talking like less than a mile from it. It's not a nice neighborhood. So the police had generally assumed that this was just a burglary that had gone wrong, even though you know, burglarly, you would kind of think if they were just trying to incapacitate the guy so they could run out with the stereo equipment, they wouldn't have taken time to bash his head in with bats. You know, that takes some effort. It tends to imply that whoever was doing this, it was either personal or they were trying to send a message. And it's bizarre, too, because his diary uh, ended up going missing from uh, the murder scene there was later revealed that there were a lot of references in there to him talking about doing a deal in San Francisco. A lot of people thought that he was trying to arrange a deal to get some Molly, some MDMA uh, to sell in the Hollywood area. And that might've been what was behind the crime. Of course, um, he had previously lived in Laurel Canyon, which I'm sure a lot of people living this are familiar with, but not check out Dave McGowan's weird scenes inside the canyon. It's where a lot of these 70s rockers were living. A lot of weird murders and stuff happened all throughout this time. So Ivers was living there for years. His house was right off of Wonderland Avenue, which is where the Wonderland gang was based out of. He's got people like Harold Ramis and John Belushi constantly coming there, hanging out with him. So... Uh, I think it was in 1980 or 81, you had the Wonderland murders, or the four on the floor murders. Same MO. The people were bludgeoned to death with uh, metal pipes or baseball bats. Again, they basically had their heads bashed in. Um, the crimes were later linked to Eddie Nash, who was a really prominent drug dealer in the L.A. area at the time. And incidentally, uh, John Belushi was Peter Ivers' good friend, would go on to die of a drug overdose. I think it was in 81, uh, while taking a speedball with heroin that was partly supplied by Eddie Nash. So I've kind of wondered if there was a broader connection to all of this. So Lynch was a part of this whole scene. I mean, he had appeared on No Wave Theater a couple of times, and I definitely think that he uh, periodically put references to the saga around Ivers and his films. Of course, you can kind of see this, especially in Twin Peaks with Laura Palmer's diary, which is really integral to the plot in terms of solving the crime. And it was kind of like a similar thing with Peter Ivers' real-life murder. It was like some of his actual friends took his diary from the murder scene before the police got a hold of it, and they were kind of using it with uh, as a way to try to solve the crime with this private detective that was hired. Uh, one of the friends that Ivers had in real life was a guy named Harold Smith, who had been introduced to him by a director named Tim Hunter. Tim Hunter would later go on to helm several of the episodes of Twin Peaks. He knew David Lynch. They were part of the American Film Institute program from the early 70s. And, of course, in Twin Peaks itself, the character who's later revealed to be harboring the so-called secret diary of Laura Palmer is a guy named Harold Smith. 
So it kind of seems like Lynch was clearly pointing to this, uh, even though he's definitely gone to great lengths to downplay his relationship with Peter Ivers in recent years. I know that book that he did, what was it, Room to Dream or something like that. It's like five, six hundred pages long. It's essentially closest we're probably going to get to an autobiography by him. He mentions Ivers exactly once in the entire book. Um, but a lot of other sources from back in the 70s have indicated that they were a lot closer than that. So I've generally felt that that whole scene around Peter Ivers was a big influence on David Lynch. Of course, Ivers was also big into uh, Eastern philosophy. He had been practicing meditation since the late 1960s. He was really big into yoga. Um, he also later got into uh, karate, actually. Uh, this was another reason I should point out, too, why a lot of people didn't buy the burglarly excuse um, with Peter Ivers because Ivers was in excellent physical condition. He wasn't a big guy by any stretch of the imagination, but he was very stocky. He was a black belt in karate. It was generally believed that if a junkie had tried to break into his apartment to steal his stereo and had awoken Peter Ivers, probably the junkie would have been the one beaten to death and not Peter Ivers because he was quite handy in a fight, as I gather. So, a lot of interesting stuff with that. But anyway, he was into all this stuff uh, right around, I think, the time Lynch met him in 73. It was around the time that Lynch took up Transcendental Meditation. So again, I've kind of wondered if Ivers might have been somebody who had steered him in that direction. Again, I think the, the common narrative is it was his sister that had gotten him into it. But again, he met Peter right around the same time. Peter has this huge interest in Eastern philosophy and a lot of Eastern spirituality, all this other kind of good stuff. I think that that probably also played a role in developing Lynch as the person that he kind of became after 73. I know he's always sort of cited that as being a a major transitional period when he discovered TM and that kind of enabled him to adapt to this creative process that he's or adopt this creative process that he is still using to this day. So I think that on the whole, there probably was a lot of significant influence that came out of this whole scene. Because on top of that, I mean, Peter Ivers, another of his good friends, was David Job. Job was literally the head of the OTO chapter in Toronto. He was really into Crowley, ceremonial magic, Scientology, UFOs. He was the guy that Ivers was doing no late theater with at the time of his murder, which David Lynch appeared on. Again, all this stuff seems to show up in Twin Peaks and a lot of Lynch's later stuff. So I just, I have to feel that spending some of his time in the 70s interacting with these circles had a much bigger influence on Lynch, the filmmaker, than what's generally been acknowledged up to this point. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I can only imagine the implications of, you know, being close to someone who falls victim to something like that that's unsolved, the perpetrators are still out there, and, and, you know, with what you've alluded to, I mean, again... This is me speaking. It does seem like Lynch might be trying to hint at these sorts of undercurrents, maybe in a way of getting back at the people who killed his friend at the same time, not saying enough to, you know, put himself in that same threatening position, right? I mean, one of the things that I had planned to ask you about is the Black Lodge, which is a major theme throughout Twin Peaks. You have this uh, actor who's very... Um, 
strange. He's a you know, little person. Yeah, Michael J. Anderson. Michael J. Anderson. Yeah, very strange guy. I don't know that I recognize him from any other films, but I think he's done. You more. never saw Carnival, man? <laughs> that's that's what I was thinking. He's done other stuff, but uh, maybe I have because he looked familiar when I first saw Twin Peaks. But, you know, his sort of appearance aside there's this strangeness about whenever he appears in twin peaks right and it, one of the things that i noticed is there's like this speeding up and slowing down of the speech right the you're not hearing the actor speak right he's kind of he's got this accent but then on top of that they're like warping his voice every time he speaks and it's, it leaves at least me with this very uneasy feeling, but the black lodge is this sort of, uh, you know, wallless room with red curtains and this sort of zigzag black and white pattern floor. So, you know, the people who obsess over symbols can go to whatever length they will to interpret that. But how do you interpret the black lodge and, and what do you make of that particular you know, setting and the whole vibe that David Lynch portrays when when that's evoked on Twin Peaks? Well, the first thing is, I mean, when you look at what he's doing there as a filmmaker, um, I can see where you're saying with that sense of unease, because I actually think that all of most all of the sequences in the Black Lodge, um, especially like in the first two seasons, are really meant to bypass the viewer's conscious mind and affect them with subconscious level. And he's using a lot of tricks of surrealism uh, to achieve that, especially with like the really vibrant uses of color in those particular scenes. And this is something that a lot of like the top filmmakers will put a great emphasis on. I mean, when you look at, say, Alfred Hitchcock in a movie like Vertigo, um, if you go back and watch that, you can see how the colors green and blue just stand out so much in that movie and a lot of crucial scenes. Um, in the case of uh, Stanley Kubrick, he's another guy who does that a lot. And The Shining, for instance, red and white are so prominently featured in several crucial scenes, like, say, the bathroom scene between Jack Nicholson and Grady. Um, another one would be Eyes Wide Shut. I mean, just think of how much the color blue is significant in that and how you're kind of always seeing the actors bathed in these sort of blue colors in here. So there are certain colors that are used for a lot of that. I mean, it might be related to alchemy. This is essentially how, say, Dario Argento would use this in a lot of his films. And I personally think that Argento and uh, Giallo and the whole were a much more significant influence on David Lynch's work than what has generally been acknowledged. But he based his use of colors a lot on alchemical schemes. Um, you know, so red, that would obviously be... Um, Oh, was it the term of, no, it's not the blackening. I'm trying to remember now what exactly the stage of that would be. Um, Rubedo, the, the reddening stage? Yes, 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 yes. You got that. You've got the green, which would be kind of a stand-in for like the green lion and the consumption of the sun and a lot of this other stuff. And I would guess that this is probably what Lynch is doing with this. This is also tied uh, to psychotherapy and specifically a Jungian interpretation of it. And this kind of seems to be another thing. All of these directors, Stanley Kubrick, uh, Fellini, David Lynch, uh, probably Hitchcock, they were all really big fans of Jung. So I suspect that the color schemes are very heavily influenced by his psychoanalytical interpretation of alchemical colors in this sense. Yeah. So to kind of start off with, he's kind of doing this 
to really bypass the conscious mind. And I think he adds to that effect with like the way the voices come off of this and so forth. But also, I think that it's an indication that uh, the state of the Black Lodge exists outside of time and space. And this becomes a much more prevalent aspect of the show as it progresses and kind of the whole notion of time travel and how that can be used to affect both the past and the future and so forth. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I definitely think that uh, a big part of the experience is when you're seeing the stuff in the Black Lodge is how it affects you on a subconscious level more so than anything else. Mm, Right. Right. And just to maybe backtrack to what you mentioned before we, started talking about the Black Lodge. David Lynch talks about the uh, transcendental meditation movement. He has a foundation, the David Lynch Foundation, which uh, I guess helps uh, sponsor, promote this form of religion. But it, and again, this is, this is not, this is coming from like personally my own (laughs) research that's not, you know, I can't cite my sources on this one, but I have seen people, researchers, whomever, uh, make the claim that there is something dark behind transcendental meditation. And I wonder if that's only through the association with David Lynch in Hollywood that people make that. But, um, you know, for the most part, Hinduism and yoga have this sort of light and bubbly appearance But there are many cases, and not just the Netflix cult documentaries, there are many cases of uh, what one book I have terms sinister yogis uh, who do things like, you know, hypnotize their subjects and enslave people. And, you know, this could all just be uh, 19th century propaganda. But (laughs) it is interesting to maybe loop that in because, uh, yeah, I don't know it. You mentioned the new age, but it does feel like there's this kind of um, underbelly, even with something like yoga, right? There's tons of scandals that come out. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of these gurus have been implicated in scandals. Um, and the guy behind TM, I can't remember his name now, but... Uh, Maharishi Ma- Mahesh Yogi. Yes. Yeah. yes, Maharishi something. Yes, yes. Um. Gosh, I'm going to try to be diplomatic about this. So TM is extremely successful. I mean, I think the organization is worth close to a billion dollars or something like that. And it's managed to greatly uh, increase the flow of its coffers since the uh, onset of the 21st century by doing a lot of outreaches to schools and prisons of that nature. Uh, Basically, they're trying to argue that they should teach kids and inmates and this kind of thing. TM is a way of managing their anger, um, which is a big reason why TM, Mark, is not a religion. They just do an elaborate initiation ceremony where you're given a sacred word for your mantra that you're not supposed to ever tell anybody else and it's blessed by a Hindu god and all this other stuff. But it's not a religion. religion. (laughs) Don't ever suggest such because otherwise you'll get sued. Um, But anyway, it can't be a religion either because it would not then be uh, able to get all of these subsidies, for instance, to teach TM in schools and things of that nature. So that's another big component of it. 
Um, they have that school in Fairfield, Iowa, which is where David Lynch actually has his film school there. Um, I would probably charitably call it the Liberty University of the New Age. Uh, Liberty University, for those of you unaware, was a school that was set up by Jerry Falwell's son, and I believe he's still running it along with his family. It has been described as a kind of diploma mill handing out pseudo degrees for a lot of Christian fundamentalist tropes. The same could probably be said of the school in Fairfield. I mean, among other things, they apparently have classes that teach you, for instance, how to levitate, um, all kinds of other stuff like that. Um, I know when I had visited there, I was told that it was fairly common for a lot of the senior citizens who were living in Fairfield to uh, apply for student loans, to go through the school to get a degree with no intention of ever using the degree and then turn around and apply for more student loans to get another degree from it and so on and so forth. Basically, it was strongly indicated to me that there was a perpetual student class there that has been using the student loans program to perpetually stay in school there and provide the university with funding. Um, Also, again, there's a bit of a real estate scam in the area as well because um, people who practice TM, they prefer to live in apartments and so forth that have been blessed um, or houses to buy houses that have been blessed by practitioners of TM. Again, this significantly increases the property value. You have that going for it for your property. Also, it's a quite a lucrative uh, racket for people in the area to go around blessing these places. And then finally, you have all of the scandals with the ghost workers that happened at the school. Um, essentially, TM was bringing in these kids from India to attend the school and the promise that they were going to get these degrees for doing work on the side. Typically, when they got to the United States, they had their passports taken from them. Uh, they received very little education. They were basically kept as a you know glorified indentured servants in the school. And many of them just disappeared, but he really knows what happened to them. Supposedly, this practice was stopped around 2012 or something to that effect. But again, I could point out that, say, Fairfield is not that far from where the University of Iowa is located. It's, um, let's say, a little over an hour drive. University of Iowa is right off of I-90, which has been the hub of major uh, instances of human trafficking. Somebody like Molly Tibbetts disappeared around there. One of this is unfolding not very far from the TM school in Fairfield. Um, And again, when you kind of consider that they had a lot of these foreigners who had their passports taken from them disappearing, well, it raises some interesting questions about what could possibly be going on there. Yeah, human trafficking uh, is one way to put it, I think. And yeah, that's something that is uh, alleged against Hollywood very often. But uh, yeah, I'm glad I asked because I'm almost certain that the transcendentalist movement has some connection to New Haven, Connecticut, but I might be confusing them with the um transcendentalists which yeah yeah you're you're thinking of the transcendentalists i don't I mean tm might have been influenced by that but the transcendentalists were much earlier that's like right. um you know emerson and thoreau and a lot of those kind of people out like around uh 
was a Concord and lexicon like Walden Pond and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But the the case is pretty clear that a lot of times these organizations are used for uh, subversive purposes like, you know, laundering money or even, you know, stealing money from the state, right? Through that whole loan scheme that you just described. I mean, that's incredible. I wonder how often that happens in other places and not just at this, uh, you know, university there in Fairfield, Iowa. I mean, I should probably emphasize, I don't, based on what I've seen, I don't know that this is necessarily abnormal for some of these religious based schools. And again, I want to emphasize the Christian right also does this too with places like Liberty university, but I'm just saying TM has been especially successful with this. Um, Again, this is like one of the reasons why I'm very skeptical when I hear people talk about how David Lynch was like drummed out of Hollywood and all this other stuff. It's like, well, he became the spokesman for the TM movement, which has significantly more money than a lot of the fucking Hollywood studios he would have been dealing with had. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe he just uh, found a better career offering. Who knows? Right. Right. Now. In Twin Peaks, this uh, underworld of prostitution, drug trafficking, darker things going on. Um, What do you expect, I mean, when it comes to Twin Peaks? Is it concluded with this latest season? Do you expect more to come from David Lynch in respect to Twin Peaks? Again, I haven't seen this uh, newest season don't be afraid to spoil it. It's been out for a while. Um, but, but yeah, what can we expect from Twin Peaks in, in this latest iteration? Well, I mean, I do think that it really concluded uh, and probably about the best way it could possibly could. I mean, I, I know that'll probably be a controversial statement, but it's, it's Twin Peaks. It has to resolve itself in as enigmatic a fashion as possible. It's just the nature of the beast. I know there's been some periodic rumblings that um, they were going to try to come back and do a fourth season. I mean, pretty much, I think as soon as the third season had wrapped up, there was discussions of that. Um, I think, in fact, they maybe just cropped up again in like the last year or so. Um, But I'm still really skeptical of this. Uh, On the one hand, I think there's really... The question of whether or not David Lynch could actually do another season, um, because he he really did a Herculean effort on that thing. I mean, he directed every episode and there's, I think, like 18 episodes in the third season. So just think about that for a minute, 18 episodes in an hour of pop. That's um, the equivalent of about nine feature length movies right there that he directed in the span of about a year or something like that. And on top of that, he also was the co-producer. He co-wrote the scripts. If you go back and look through the credits and what have you, he was even doing like editing and things like that. And then on top of that, he also um, made Gordon Cole a pretty significant character in the third season. So he's actually appearing in it as an actor pretty regularly. Um, I mean, that's a lot for a guy, especially Lynch's age to do. I mean, I, you know, I criticize Lynch about a lot of stuff, but I will give him mad props for doing that. That definitely was a testament of physical endurance that he could have done something like that when I think he was in like his late 60s. Um, a lot of younger filmmakers, I do not think, would have been able to have managed doing something like that. 
So I think for the first question would be if they were going to do another season, would Lynch be willing to give up some of the control on it? And I, I just don't get the sense of it. It seems like he and Mark Frost really wanted to uh, very much do this as more of like a family affair. A lot of the people that were working on it uh, have been with Lynch for a lot of years. I mean, again, there are a lot of the old veterans from the original run of Twin Peaks who have worked with him on a lot of other projects. Um, people have described to me as it being almost kind of cultish with the group that was behind the uh, the filming of the third season. So I, I don't know that they would really be looking to bring more outsiders into it. It seemed like they tried to make it with as small of a crew behind the scenes as they possibly could. So it kind of begs the question, is Lynch still able in his 70s to take on a project of that magnitude? Well, I mean, only he really knows. It seems like he's certainly stayed in pretty good shape. Uh, As far as I know, he's not hitting up Bob's big boy uh, the way he did back in his 30s. So apparently he's also given up smoking. I mean, maybe he could do it, but... It would definitely be, I think, a question of for him, you know, does he want to go out the way Stanley Kubrick did with Eyes Wide Shut? I think Kubrick basically worked himself to death uh, trying to edit that. I mean, he was doing like, what, 14-hour days or something like that for almost a year prior to his death, just doing the editing work on it. So Lynch I would probably try to bring that kind of fanaticism to Twin Peaks, which is why I think on some level, now that he's getting into his 70s, uh, you might uh, consider it more as to whether or not it would be worth it because, you know, it it could significantly shorten his life at best. So there is that component. And then on the other hand, there's also the fact that when the third season was announced, it was almost like the stars were aligned in the sense that so many of the original actors were still alive. I mean, I know a few of them like Jack Nance, the guy who played Leo Johnson, um, I know one or two others had already uh, passed on at that point in time, but by and large, almost all of the you know major character or major actors were still alive, so they were able to go back and film this, which is pretty significant because I mean they're doing this twenty five years after the original run, and you know more than a few of those actors were not especially young when they did the first two seasons, but they were still around. Um, And miraculously, they were able to get their scenes filmed. In the case of, say, the log lady, they actually had to film her scene shortly before the actual production began because she was already dying at the time. But it worked. Um, They got almost all of the major characters to reappear there, I think, with maybe the exception of of, uh, Sheriff Truman. Well, there there is a Sheriff Truman in season three, obviously, just not uh, the one from the first two seasons. But um, anyway, most of those actors are gone now at least a good chunk of them. And I think that would be a major hurdle is, you know, do you really want to try to go back and do it without Albert or without, you know, so many of these other um, significant role players that have passed on subsequently. And I think that would be another kind of hindrance to it. I mean, of course, Lynch was more than willing to really subvert the Twin Peaks format in season three. I mean, a good chunk of it took place in Las Vegas, actually. So, Uh, With his approach to filmmaking, I mean, it wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility that he would decide to do a fourth season and largely use a different location and different actors for it. But I still feel like on some levels, uh, even he has to know that, you know, a big part of, I think, the charm of the show and why it's uh, inspired so much devotion from so many people 
is because people, the characters did resonate with people that are, you know, struggles resonated with people. And I think when you lose more and more of the original ones, it's just going to be hard to try to recapture that emotional connection that the audience has with the franchise. Hmm. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's that time in the show where we go to our ad break. Of course, if you want to experience the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast ad free, your favorite podcast without any ads, uh, go over to the Patreon or the Substack sign up today you'll get every episode ad free plus bonus extensions to each episode uh, all of the previous archived episodes and even secret episodes that have never been released beyond the paywall so go over there now or stick around after these ads to hear the rest of the show Right. Yeah, it's interesting. As I asked that question, maybe uh, the the thought should have come to me before I asked you to do this podcast, but the thought occurred to me now. Why are we talking about Twin Peaks? It's been six years since the... Uh, I don't know. You're the one who asked me. <laughs> and I, I get that, and I admit, you know, maybe I should have thought of this earlier, but it it struck me as something to talk about. Maybe I saw somebody mention it somewhere, but I guess I can parlay that into a question for you. Twin Peaks, is it still relevant today? Is there, is there still uh, this sort of undercurrent of mystery or do you think with this season three, this sort of, and, and the novels that have come out, uh, do you think that it's thoroughly wrapped up and, and put away? Well, I mean, I think it's actually more relevant now than ever. I mean, if anything, because uh, I just went back and watched season three when I was doing my own show on it uh, a couple of months ago. And I was really struck by uh, how big it is when it comes to things like time travel, that it becomes so uh, prevalent in this day and age. But I think also when you get into things like the Mandela effect, which was just starting to gain some traction when Twin Peaks uh, this when season three, I think originally began to start filming, but subsequently it's now, you know, I mean, a major thing. It's a big meme online. Um, you know, you can have this sort of like parody stuff, like there's clips from the alleged Sinbad movie that were made about it, but it raises a lot of interesting questions with that because Twin Peaks in my mind is such a fantastic, uh, fictional depiction of how, something like the Mandela effect may essentially be happening. Um, you know, to give you some spoilers here, but I mean, I tend to think that in season three, uh, the Dale Cooper character has effectively become an agent of the Black Lodge, but an unknowing agent, though I think maybe at the end he does realize that. But anyway, the Black Lodge is using his obsession with Laura Palmer against him because he's so taken with her and he's just utterly dedicated to try to prevent her from being killed. And you already start to see elements of this in Fire Walk with me where he kind of appears with her at the end in that kind of angel personification. But they go much further with this going into season three where effectively you see him continuously going back in time trying to rewrite the timeline where Laura Palmer is not killed. And 
it seems that his periodic efforts of this have begun to resonate in the fictional world of Twin Peaks. Uh, to give you an example, like two of the most, uh, you know, kind of beloved characters are Big Ed and uh, Norma, who runs Norma's Diner. Of course, they had had this sort of on and off love affair for many years. They were high school sweethearts. And then uh, Big Ed had ended up uh, marrying Nadine, uh, the one-eyed lady. And obviously, that was a bit of a problem for the marriage. But, you know, if you recall kind of back in, um, I think it was season two, uh, Big Ed has got this really great scene with Albert where he recounts how uh, Nadine lost her eye. Essentially, it was like in this hunting accident that they had. And in, I think it was actually the one of the books that Mark Frost wrote for the series, for the new series in season three. He totally redid the story of how he she lost her eye and kind of in general uh, redid how the relationship between Big Ed and Norma had played out because... In the book, and it's maybe even implied in season three, Norma and Big Ed had not had that affair that they have in, I think it's season two. And in fact, there's not even, I think, even a real reference to the whole thing with Mike and Norma having the, you know, sleeping with him while she thinks she's in high school and all this other stuff. So I've almost wondered if this was kind of um, their subtle way of addressing like the Mandela effect. So Cooper has been going back. He's obsessed with trying to change this timeline. And it's begun to subtly alter things to where things like, you know, just, you know, as mundane as Big Ed and Norma's relationship, it hasn't played out in Twin Peaks season three quite the way that it did in the prior seasons because of this meddling. And more broadly speaking, it seems like there's almost been this deterioration of Twin Peaks in the intervening years. Of course, in uh, the show, it's this, in the first two seasons, it's really this idealistic place, almost heavenly kind of place with this great pie and coffee. Everybody's friendly. It's kind of this extended family. There is that undercurrent of darkness, but it's still very subtle at that point in time. Whereas by season three, it's very prevalent. You know, there's just this this fantastic scene, I think, like in the middle of season three involving Bobby, who has become a police officer, ironically, in the third season. And he's meeting with Shelley and their daughter at the double R. And they hear this gunshot. Bobby, being a cop, he goes out there to investigate it. And it turns out that... Um, this guy had just basically randomly left his pistol in the back seat of his car and his kid had picked it up, thought it was a toy and had fired it. And uh, the guy is just totally unoblivious to how idiotic it was to leave a loaded gun like that around. And then on top of that, there's, you know, come to this huge traffic uh uh, blockage like behind the car after they had stopped because of the gunshot there's this woman who's just fanatically beeping her horn over and over again and screaming it's just like nobody's doing anything constructive at all everybody's just sort of like in this uh, i don't know like this just mental state of like abject negativity and what have you of ignorance you know they're going around doing this silly stuff. It's traumatizing their kid in a bird lay. And then the community at large is totally unable to pull together to do anything as meaningful as even getting the traffic going together. I mean, they practically need somebody to just, you know, guide them by hand through all of this. It's just a very sad scene. And I mean, Lynch even kind of plays into that with that expression on Bobby's face as he's kind of watching all of this 
play out. And I think that it's very much commentary on what has become of Twin Peaks in the 21st century. And I think that a lot of that is due to Cooper bringing more and more of the influence of the Black Lodge into it. Um, I mean, I've always sort of worked on this theory that Twin Peaks is actually the White Lodge, right? I mean, it's, again, this idealistic place of brotherhood and all these other noble virtues in the first two seasons. But by the third season, it's become so corrupted by the forces, the Black Lodge. And ironically, at the forefront of this is Cooper himself, who's been totally manipulated into uh, essentially destroying the modern world, if you will, And then it gets even weirder uh, at the very end of season three, uh, because at this point, Cooper appears to uh, cross. He tries to travel back in time again, and it seems like he goes into another dimension. And at this point, he's ended up in our world, the real world. And you can kind of tell this because he drives by the double R diner at Twin Peaks, and it has the actual name of the diner as it has in you know real life, not what it is in the show. And there's a lot of other references to that. I sort of feel like in a sense as well, this is maybe Lynch playing into the fact that fiction itself is also a means of rewriting reality and essentially changing the narrative on things. So I think that it gets really deep on these kinds of levels. And this is just a theme that I've started to notice more and more again in a lot of entertainment that's come subsequently from that. I mean, I would think of Riverdale, for instance, which I do think really lives up to the hype as kind of the modern Twin Peaks. But again, it later goes into this whole time travel storyline as well with this whole notion of trying to rewrite the past to create a better future. And it seems like that this is a reoccurring obsession that we're all kind of struggling with right now. I mean, you can see this in a lot of these liberal movements like Black Lives Matter or some of these other groups that want to try to come up with this idealized notion of America's past that only emphasizes, um, you know, the roles that minorities or um, women have played in it. And, you know, it's not to say that a lot of this isn't necessarily a good thing. I mean, yes, we've downplayed a lot of this before, but we're also, I think, kind of taking, uh, by contrast, and doing this, we're almost creating a new stereotype, if you will, where, you know, we're kind of reimagining America's past where, you know, only anything of value or substance or goodness was done by minorities or by women or something like that. And everything else is this sort of flawed and evil and corruption, if you will. Hmm. So, you know, again, it kind of begs well, how much of this is influencing our, you know, this new perception that we're trying to create of our past. How much is it really influencing the current world that we're living in? Uh, this is another issue that Lynch and I think a lot of filmmakers have been kind of subtly dealing with in some of these uh, more recent series, if you will. And just more broadly speaking, when you look at just how big the concept of time travel has become right now. I mean, Jesus, you know, you know, you have this whole subsection of magic, time magic, if you will, that's kind of coming out of the, the stuff around the cybernetic cultural research unit and so forth. I mean, just this whole notion of time travel is really taken off in recent years. And I can see why it does seem to provide a compelling explanation for things like the Mandela effect. And it does kind of beg the question, well, if it is possible, is this why it seems like the world is changing so much, almost literally before our eyes, if you will? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I was just speaking with a friend last night about a professor at UConn who is, um, 
you know, allegedly working on time travel. They've created a prototype for a time machine that they have no way of constructing at this point in time because some of the parts are theoretical. But, but yeah, one of the anecdotes that I learned from this friend, due to the nature of the anecdote, I won't mention his name, um, he said that a friend of his that was working in Yukon suddenly died at a very young age. And this guy was uh, working in some of these so-called secret labs that Yukon allegedly has. And that's where this professor is working on this uh, time machine stuff. So yeah, who knows? Uh, maybe these things are happening right as we speak. Now, one thing that I think maybe hints at the the greater arc of this conspiracy pop culture wave is the uh, incorporation of David Bowie into Twin Peaks as a character who is sort of a, a counterpart in a way to Coop, Dale Cooper in the sense that he's like all, he's also an FBI agent, um, but he disappears in the the second movie and comes back after like supposedly time traveling and he's like saying all this stuff that you know they can't make sense of and i wonder how much of that was influenced by bowie's strange life and his own weird experiences that uh you know maybe and of course he's you know, a big star at that time when they were filming it so having him on set i'm sure was a big deal i'm sure david lynch appreciated it did you learn anything about his relationship with uh bowie lynch and, and bowie and and how bowie's influence is seen in twin Ple in twin peaks well no i hadn't really looked into that too much but i mean it was obvious that yeah they definitely cast bowie there very much i think for the the symbolism behind it uh because yeah his philip jeffrey's character even though bowie had died uh, by the time they did season three they still kept bringing philip jeffrey's back into it and he really became kind of a central figure in the overall plot line to it um but yeah bowie has certainly dealt with a lot of science fiction themes i mean of course i know chris has done the whole notion of him being kind of a walk-in or a vessel or something to that nature uh which again is fascinating in light of how a guy like uh you know cooper's character is used in it and also sort of the implications with philip jeffries that they are these sort of vehicles that the black lodge is using to kind of drive uh this mission i guess essentially to uh to rewrite reality as we know it um i will say though i mean i actually think in some senses when you get into some of the more headier stuff that's in season three i feel like a, at least part of it was maybe inspired more by mark frost and specifically uh, some of the things that had happened with him in his career uh, Frost is, of course, a screenwriter. His dad, Warren Frost, was a pretty significant actor. He plays the Doc um, Hay Haywood character in Twin Peaks. But Mark Frost had written um, one of my favorite AEVs movies called The Believers uh, prior to getting into Twin Peaks, which is a movie that stars Martin Sheen and what have you. And it's a really interesting movie because it deals uh, essentially with this cult involved in drug trafficking that's also using Santa Rhea and Paleo Mumbo and some of these kinds of uh, practices in it. And what's weird about this movie is that it eerily parallels what happened with Adolfo Constanzo, the Butcher of Metamoros. This was, of course, the... 
uh, Mexican drug, or excuse me, he wasn't Mexican. He was a Cuban American who had ended up in Mexico and he had become a significant tractor, a uh, trafficker for the Gulf cartel around Metamoros and then of course Brownsville, Texas is across the border. And he gained quite a bit of uh, notoriety around 1990 when it came out uh, after he'd been apprehended that he was essentially sacrificing um, rival narcos and stuff like that and boiling their bones down in this cauldron and this cult site uh, that he had around the border. And eventually this is what had gotten him into trouble because they had abducted an American kid on spring break in Mexico that they sacrificed effectively uh, to ensure their safety and drug trafficking. And that had kind of forced the hand of the Americans to get involved. But what's really weird about this is that the stuff with Constanzo didn't really start to blow up until around 1990, if I remember correctly, but the believers had come out two years earlier. And there's almost no way that Mark Frost would have been aware of this stuff unless, I mean, he had somebody leaking knowledge about it. And I didn't really get the sense that he had those kinds of contacts because the stuff that Constanzo was doing, you know, was really flying under the radar. This just, you know, again, had he not abducted an American tourist, it's quite possible this stuff might have continued indefinitely. I mean, my understanding is, you know, there's quite a bit of this sort of like local sorcery with like Paleo Mumbo and some of these, um, you know, these narcos and that kind of thing, right? So it begs the question, how much of that did it really influence Mark Frost when they started to put these references to time travel later on into the series? Because I've often wondered if that affected him when he sat back and realized that this screenplay uh, that he had written eerily paralleled events that were then unfolding in real life, which he had no knowledge of, and that he had gone on to make a movie about before they even were revealed to the public. Um, I mean, I would think that that would certainly be a very disturbing proposition to toy with when you kind of get into health and something like this is really possible. Uh, but, you know, this isn't the first instance where you could even point to a movie like that. I mean, really, the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre is another movie where it hints at this sort of cold act, you know, acting around uh, Texas and the border area. Um, you know, again, you later have the stuff with Constanza that comes out. Also, the Henry Lee Lucas killings. Of course, Texas Chainsaw was partly inspired by Ed Gein. But again, it does tend to parallel some of the later rumors about the hand of death cult and you know some of these other things that were coming out later so this is where you know sort of getting back to the beginning of our discussion where you get into some really crazy stuff with uh these low budget horror movies and some of the things that appear in them and where some of these ideals come from i mean everybody always wants to argue that it's you know predictive programming but i just you know again it's like why would the U.S. government want to use a low-budget horror movie that at the time it was being made, you know, probably the assumption would have been only maybe a thousand people or something would have seen to kind of throw this notion out here that there's some kind of cold act. It, just, it doesn't really make sense. Uh, and this is where I think, you know, uh, Robert Sullivan's kind of concept of uh, some of these events influencing filmmakers from the future might have merit to it. I mean, it does seem that a lot of this is potentially happening more with our subconscious than anything else. Yeah, and I like the way you, you put that. And I wonder if, you know, going back to what you were saying before, if the predictive programming is really in the movies that 
receive the you know oscar appreciation you know mainstream appeal and all that i wonder if you know that's really where we should be looking for the predictive programming but uh Stephen, we're really kind of, uh, I think, giving people a good reason, if they haven't already, to look into Twin Peaks, and I appreciate you for that. Uh, the Albacore mystery can lead people down, you know, many different avenues, and I'm excited to see what comes of it for you, because, you know, you've already done some really interesting work investigating that whole saga. Uh, but as we sort of switch gears here, you recently put out an incredible book. It's titled The Art Book, The Secret History of Psy War, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality. And I want to get into this a little bit for our um, supporters here on the show. Uh, but before we get into the supporters section, um, tell the audience where they can pick this book up. Tell the audience, you know, maybe a little bit about what they can expect to find. Obviously, viseupview.blogspot.com is where to go to get the book. But is it available in other outlets, Amazon and all that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want the physical copy, just head on over to Amazon. You get it from there. And then the PDFs uh, are at the Farm's official store, which is uh, the Farm Podcast. Again, that's the Farm Podcast, all one word, dot store, which is where you can get a copy of the PDF there. But um, yeah, it was it was quite an effort. Um, I've been working on this book now for like about three and a half years. Uh, it's part of the first book in a trilogy. Um, I had decided I think it was only in like the last six or seven months to break it up into a trilogy. But inevitably, something had to be done. I was like two hundred thousand words into writing it. It was just like no, there's no way that this is going to work as a single book unless I'm going to try to do this as War and Peace or something like that. And I don't know if that's what anybody really wants to try to uh, make it through for a conspiracy text or something, right? So anyway, I mean, it got broken into three books, but um, I mean, it was still an epic undertaking. I mean, I literally crossed the country compiling material for this. I went to Hoover Institute. I went to the Carlisle Barracks in uh, Pennsylvania, a couple of other sites uh, to really raid the archives uh, for material for this. And I think I was able to come up. Uh, with quite a few revelations that have never really been addressed before, only kind of sparingly in other sources for this. Mm. But uh, as the title kind of implies, you know, this is uh, the first book in a trilogy, and this one is uh, dealing mainly with psychological warfare. Uh, book two will be more in conspiratainment, and book three will kind of bring it all together with the shattering reality thing, if you will. Right. Uh, but the guy I really wanted to focus on in this, and it wasn't even a person I had started out wanting to emphasize, but he just kind of became the main character of the first book as I went more into it, uh, was General Edward Lansdale, who I think really revolutionized the approach of psychological warfare uh, in the Cold War for the United States because of the way that he was able to incorporate uh spirituality and mysticism into his approach of psychological warfare. Of course, uh, he ran the United States' first major counterinsurgency program in the post-World War II era, which was in the Philippines. And he famously used the whole vampire thing as part of his side war bag there. 
that involved abducting insurgents, uh, having them killed, drained of blood, and then having puncture wounds, putting in their necks and hanging them upside down from trees so that the local inhabitants could be convinced that vampires had murdered them because this was apparently a major superstition in Filipino culture. And he went on to do this uh to manipulate other superstitions in different ways. Uh, another one uh, was the use of having insurgents make confessions, recording them before they were executed, and then having these confessions blasted out from speakers attached to planes over villages. The whole, it was meant to kind of create this uh, impression that these spirits of these uh, guys, these insurgents, their ghosts effectively were coming there and telling them to not join the resistance, the hooks, right? Mm. And then he even would do other things like have, uh, you know, these kind of Masonic, like all seeing eyes painted on the doors of suspected insurgents, a lot of just little kind of mind tactics like that. And gradually this approach was incorporated wholesale into uh, the United States military's psychological warfare operations. Uh, you could look at something like Wandering Souls in Vietnam, which is a program that Colonel Michael Aquino participated in as kind of a, uh, a successor to some of the stuff that Lansdale was doing. In this case, you know, they're still recording the insurgents' confessions, but they're using helicopters now. and They're going around with speakers, blasting out these confessions with the same purpose of trying to convince them that they're being haunted by ghosts of dead insurgents. <laughs> Um, in a more kind of a macabre uh, way, they, uh, what was it? They, oh yeah, they had all the stuff with the third eye in Vietnam. So in some Buddhist schools, it's kind of thought that the soul went through the pineal gland. So uh, when they would kill insurgents, they would mutilate the third eye. In some cases, they would drive nails through it and they would put death cards uh, there uh, over these uh, wounds. So there was some pretty brutal stuff that was done with all of this. And I became fascinated by the notion of how something like this would be used domestically here. How would our own superstitions potentially be weaponized? And the more I looked at it, it seemed clear to me that they have been using fringe cultures for these purposes, especially uh, when you get into like the UFO field on the one hand, but also to... And what I would think of as the conspiratorial right, I mean, a lot of these groups like the John Birch Society and the Liberty Lobby, I think were also a part of this psychological warfare effort and essentially the weaponization of what we would think of now as conspiriology or something to that effect. So it's uh, definitely really heady stuff. And eventually we start getting the things with psychotronic weapons and a lot of other crazy stuff, uh, Gladio. The American stay behinds, you know, what mm. if, uh, what the real MJ-12 was, what it could have possibly been, how this all plays into nuclear policy, continuity of government, and a lot of these kind of futuristic weapons. Right, right. Yeah, it, it's a very subtle and brilliant title. I should clarify, the art book one, I, I forgot the one because it, it almost looked like a break, uh, but the art book one, that makes sense. Now... I think this is such a brilliant avenue of research, particularly for someone with your skill set and mind. Um, now, when it comes to the art, okay, do you think that, because what you just said about conspir conspiriology, is that the, the right way of pronouncing it? That's a yeah, new one for so. me. I, I like that. It reminds me of what Chris Milligan, uh, the man behind Trine Day, told me about when I was interviewing him really early on in the show and he said that he remembered as a kid going to all these different, you know, kind of underground used bookstores and he would find these pamphlets 
And these pamphlets would say, you know, the blacks are doing it, the Jews are doing it, the whites are doing it, you know, and it was always the same conspiracy, but with a different culprit, right? And it was like dependent on, you know, where he was finding this stuff. And he started to realize, oh, this is just like a formula. They're just pumping this out as a formula to keep people divided. And I guess to parlay this into a question, you know, do you think that in the same way we can like reverse engineer some lost technology that the you know discerning public almost reverse engineers this conspiracy propaganda that's pushed against us uh and that's where some of this you know maybe uh the fat as opposed or the the you know the wheat as opposed to the chaff is in the conspiracy world because there's a lot of chaff there's a lot of you know stuff that can be discarded but there are people who break through and, and come up with some pretty compelling uh, ideas and theories that seem to, you know, predict uh, what actually comes forward uh, when things are revealed. I mean, am I making any sense here, Stephen? I'm yeah, to- yeah, I get what you're saying. <laughs> well, I mean, you have to sort of, you know, again, I always like recommend people read this book called Propaganda by Jacques uh, Ellul, I believe, E-L-L-U-L, I remember correctly. <laughs> Uh, but again, propaganda is a big part of psychological warfare, and this is why I believe Elul's uh, reflections on this are very relevant. See, as he emphasizes throughout this book, good propaganda always tells you the truth. It doesn't lie to you. It's in what is left out is where the spin comes in. So you'll stick to telling people facts. It's more the question of what you have left out is what can put things in an entirely different perspective. So Again, a lot of this stuff, you know, and I know people kind of get in arms when I uh, talk about uh, essentially the whole conspiracy community as being an arm of psychological warfare. But again, that doesn't mean that some of these claims are not true. It's just in the way that they're being presented to the public at large and how a lot of this is being used. I mean, I think really when you get into conspiracy theories, it's a very effective way of implementing what Naomi Klein referred to as the shock doctrine. Essentially, um, she believed that the United States had started to apply the techniques of MK Ultra to a societal-wide level where you're trying to put somebody into a fugue state so that you can re-imprint their consciousness, only that it can be done at a societal level. And I think that you see something like that happening with a lot of these groups in the fringe, um, you know, be it in the UFO circles or in maybe more conventional Alex Jones info war kind of conspiracy circles. Because when you first get into this stuff, it is a tremendous shock. It does put you in that proverbial fugue state, and it does rewire your worldview. And that's why it's interesting when you see the directions that most standard conspiracy stuff tries to push you towards. A lot of it is usually um, libertarian-oriented or maybe getting into some of this kind of hyper-nationalistic stuff and that kind of thing. So I don't think that it's necessarily that there are not facts that are being used. In fact, I think a lot of cases, uh, some of these factual things are quite powerful, like say that the CIA is involved in drug trafficking. I mean, this is something that, you know... Only a complete quack at this point in time would say that that is a conspiracy theory because there is so much documentation around this. I mean, it is a factual thing, but because of the way that we're brought up, even in this day and age, it's still a shocking thing to consider 
that we fought this war on drugs for decades, that so many people have gone to jail, that have died in drug overdoses, all of this other societal cost. And nonetheless, the CIA was still using drug trafficking to implement foreign policy. And this is very well documented at this point in time. It's just a total revelation to somebody. I mean, I know for me, that was just staggering because somebody who had been arrested would done a little time on this who had a criminal record and what have you i mean that's a profound shock to the system when you realize that the national security state is simultaneously going around and using this to profit and to wage wars and this other kind of stuff and i think that that's why it is a very potent mean because it is affecting you on a deep level and it's an easy way to go in there and then try to uh kind of put in the real sales pitch so to speak yeah yeah, absolutely. And I really, you know, I think this kind of connects to a lot of what we've talked about today. I know that's going to be a part of the second book, right? That's where you're going to dive into more of this, the yeah, yeah, application absolutely. of this through media. Now, this isn't just films. We're talking about everything from radio broadcasts to television to music, right? I mean, potentially well, any yeah. piece of cultural technology. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, it even gets into things, you know, like crime and that kind of thing. I mean, one of the big things that I'm going to emphasize in the second book uh, is Jack the Ripper. Because, again, this is a fascinating thing, because the bottom line is that um, we don't know how many people Jack the Ripper, quote unquote, killed. It could have been the Canical Five victims. It could have been more than that. It could have been less than that. We don't know if there was one killer, if there were multiple killers, if the killings were all committed by different people and there was no connection at all. Any of these scenarios are possible, right? Because the crime scene has been so thoroughly contaminated. So many other things have happened with this. The one thing that we can say about Jack the Ripper with some degree of certainty is that Jack the Ripper is a character that was created by the British press at this particular time when the killings were unfolding and that this character served a purpose because there were a lot of ways the Ripper killings could have gone. Again, it's been mentioned a little bit, but the problem with anti-Semitism in this was really quite vast. I mean, obviously you had the reference to the three Jews there, um, but also originally before the Jack the River moniker came up, he was known as Leather Apron. This played into a lot of stereotypes concerning Jewish butchers, the whole notion of human sacrifice with it. And then also one of the bodies of the victims was left right before the Jewish Socialist Club. And when you step back and look at more broadly speaking, what is happening in the UK at the time? Well, they have a lot of issues with Russia. The Okrana, the Russian secret police, have their largest overseas station in the UK. The Okrana would are usually credited with leaking the protocols of the learned elders of Zion a couple of years after the Ripper killings. Again, I don't have anything conclusively prove this or anything, but you could certainly look at the circumstances, the people involved. And you could see how possibly somebody might have been trying to frame the Ripper killings in an anti-Semitic light initially that could have, say, touched off riots in the UK and London that could have been very problematic for the British government. And that the British media stepped in and came up with this new personification for the killer as Jack the Ripper, this kind of tuxedo-wearing, davenier, potentially aristocratic individual that deflected a lot of the blame away from these other scenarios. So 
I think that you see a lot of this playing out in the media over the years, and it's been known that there has been the creation of these characters, especially in relation to some of these sensational crimes and so forth. It's a fascinating topic. Wow, yeah, I'd never heard that <laughs> angle on the Jack the Ripper case. And yeah, I think that um, potential, like, scapegoating of you know making him this character of uh you know like class and you know lumps him in with like alistair crowley in my mind when i was doing my research but on that note crowley was involved with espionage himself so maybe he would have been you know willing to play into that you know character knowing full well that it was this sort of uh you know straw man created to to I guess, avert uh, chaos in the streets, a, a crisis, a, a sort of uh, revolt. There's a lot of possibilities with that, but I mean, it's more the question of like what was done in the aftermath, because I mean, when you get into like the whole thing, with the serial killer mythos, <clears throat> the thing is, is there's been a lot of prolific serial killers out there that we've never heard of, mm. but the ones that we do hear a lot about like Zodiac, the Son of Sam killings, the Black Dahlia, and the people connected to that, they all like to write letters to the press. It's a really interesting aspect about this, as many of the most colorful serial killers had really extensive relations with the press. Wow. And that is, you know, a big question is, well, why is this? Why, in the first place, did these certain killers decide to correspond with the press? And why did it become such this big deal? Yeah. Yeah, and that, I mean... Only you know the terrifying prospect that one of the serial killers we don't know about, you know, the ones that uh, aren't publicized, and what connections might they have, or you know, why are why are the ones that are being sort of promoted in this sinister kind of way? Uh, why them? Is it is it merely that they've written into the press and have this relationship? Or are there other aspects that make them a sort of uh, good candidate for this role? Well, I think it's specifically they've been trying to create a certain aesthetic around certain serial killers. And then in more recent years, I would say that the emphasis has shifted uh, to spree shooters. I mean, now, you know, just look at, I mean, almost the religious zeal that certain people have for the Columbine shooters or Dylan Root or some of these other characters, right? So, I mean, this kind of stuff has really become, in its own way, this almost morbid theology, if you will. And it does sort of beg the question is, again, why are we, you know, creating these kind of patron saints around the figures of serial killers and spree shooters? Mm, yeah. No, it's definitely odd. Yeah. Well, you know, when it connects back to the military and MK Ultra, movies like Clockwork Orange come to mind where they're, you know, taking this uh, ultra violent class of people and then rehabilitating them. Right. It, it almost seems like that's happening uh, in the reverse in a way where we're being rehabilitated uh, into being violent or indoctrinated into being violent so that then we're susceptible to being rehabilitated and, and drugged up. Well, yeah, I could see that. And I mean, I think a clockwork orange is kind of a good example of that where I think you can sort of see how, uh, you know, you have these kind of fringe youth movements. I mean, like with Alex and his troops, I mean, Kubrick was obviously clearly inspired by kind of the sixties rock scene with that. 
I mean, how effectively these groups are manipulated and used by their betters, quote unquote, I should say with that, uh, to carry out these different agendas. I mean, of course, later in A Clockwork Orange, you kind of see how some of the, you know, Alex's uh, former comrades at arms would are uh, brought into the police force effectively, and then they end up assaulting him in their roles as police officers. But yeah, I mean, it is fascinating how these cultures are created for various reasons, and then how... Um, the different security services, the business interests, and all of them are able to manipulate these groups, even though uh, they believe very firmly that they're avant-garde, that they're operating outside the system or against it or something to that effect. But I mean, ultimately, a lot of their actions end up being system-supporting. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what's so brilliant about this research is you're showing that, you know, <laughs> things that we thought were counterculture are actually, you know, this engineered weapon against us and what what is the real counterculture when we realize that this counterculture is uh is sponsored so to speak right i mean where where does that leave those fringe areas i'm sure there's still counterculture but it's not the counterculture we've been uh we've been shown right this sort of uh really manufactured and corporate sponsored version of counterculture well, I mean, I think that's really the problem is we're not allowed to have a true counterculture. I mean, anytime you do start to have something like that emerging, it's almost inevitably co-opted by different actors for various reasons. Mm. Again, I don't know that there's necessarily this sort of uniform capstone at the pyramid that a lot of people believe, but there are different groups who seek to use a lot of these uh, budding countercultures for different measures. But yeah, I mean, we haven't been able... I think to have something that was truly organic uh, to grow up as a counterculture in quite some time. And I think that that's really a big part of the issue now, because ultimately, um, you know, you're always going to have those sort of outliers or fringe groups in society. A lot of times, um, you know, people who end up in these groups are intellectually gifted or uh, various ways. So they have a tremendous capacity for societal change. And I think in a positive counterculture environment, you know, you could see some real fruit bear uh, be born out of this, which is, again, probably why there's so much effort put into uh, just perverting these scenes, bringing in, I mean, all of this horrendous stuff that really uh, mitigates whatever positive influence that they're having. You know, again, we're kind of like going back and, talking about like the horror genre i mean obviously you know with these low budget films there's been tremendous potential for filmmakers to slip in genuinely subversive efforts but then on top of that they're working within a medium that's based on exploitation films that was essentially using gore for the sake of gore to sell tickets or nudity or something to that effect so it's kind of like a balancing act there where you know, we've all been, I guess, kind of forced to participate in it where we're trying to do something subversive within these uh, circles that are controlled at some level or other that are also trying to put out this negative uh, content into society at large. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the detective who ends up, you know, <laughs> playing into the, the schemes of the bad guys he's trying to investigate. You know, we, we kind of fall into a similar uh analogous situation as as uh 
Witnesses. Well, Coop, well, I mean, Dale Cooper is actually a great example of that. I mean, effectively, I think he's become an agent of the Black Lodge in uh, season three of Twin Peaks. And certainly this wasn't something that he set out to do. I'm mm-hmm. sure. Again, I think that last scene of him when Laura Palmer is whispering in his ear and that abject look of horror on his face, I think that's the actual moment when he realizes he's helping the Black Lodge. And he's like, holy fuck what have i done you know but i mean i think that that's kind of the situation so many people find themselves in where they become these unwitting agents Mm. of some sinister force or other and they're going around here thinking that they're doing good i mean of course this whole time cooper's convinced himself that he's trying to save laura palmer that this is going to be a great thing with twin peaks because they don't have to go through the trauma of her death and all the negativity that it brings out etc cetera, etc cetera. in reality he's just making things all the much more worse by doing this but it's just something that he's totally oblivious to and i think that that's the trap that a lot of people fall in mm. right yeah it's a it's a really, really compelling series of uh, events that we've lined up here in this conversation, Stephen, and I'm really appreciative that you're joining me to, to talk about all this stuff. You've been on the show. It's your fourth time now, and, uh, well, third time, because one time, uh, oh, fourth time, but I was on your show, so we've done we've done plenty of podcasts together. Yeah, I was like trying to think, well, which ones are you counting here? Because you've all, I did that skull and bones thing with you. I think I was on your other show too, doing like the weird Wisconsin thing or something. Right, um, Esoteric America. We can't yeah, leave yeah. that out. As we sort of, you know, wind down towards the end here, we're way over the two hour mark. I appreciate your time. Have you ever looked into this character, William Gillette, originated the the character we know as Sherlock Holmes, he obviously didn't invent it, but he brought into you know the lexicon things like uh, what became Elementary, My Dear Watson. That was something that he initially created. And also the image of the deerstalker cap and the pipe, that was something he put towards Sherlock and that obviously stuck. But, you know, you mentioned the detective and I'd been looking into William Gillette because his residence is in Connecticut. He built this weird looking castle on a hill. Um, It's what's interesting about the castle is they have one of the first tarot card decks and there are paintings of them as well around the castle. So this guy had some sort of interest in the occult because he has one of the first tarot, tarot card decks I should correct myself, created in America. It's not one of the first tarot card decks, obviously. But yeah, he's just interesting that this guy who plays the detective, Sherlock Holmes, this legendary character, really pushed the character forward in many ways, also has this interest in the occult. And I I think this is something that is inherently connected in some ways that when we think of like, you know, the, the typical crime drama today with detectives, you know, uh, uh, whatever the, the show, law and order and shows like that, um, you don't necessarily make that link. You know, they're more secular now. They're more like, you know, uh, modern in that sense. What, what are your, any thoughts on that? Well, it's actually a really interesting point that you bring up there because, um, yeah, so... When you get back into the history of the detective genre, it's actually always been closely tied with the horror genre. In fact, they pretty much both 
originated uh, with Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, obviously, we could argue that there were horror stories before Poe. Um, again, uh, it's debatable when exactly the first true horror story emerged. But generally speaking, Poe is a pretty good candidate for that. And it's fascinating uh, because the detective is a character that historically has always been there to discredit the supernatural. Um, you know, this is, of course, the classic uh, instance of Sherlock Holmes and say like the Hounds of Bakersfield or something like that, where he investigates what's seemingly a supernatural caper and then he's able to reduce it to a purely materialistic means. And that's always kind of been uh, the purpose of detective characters. I mean, this is something that, say, Dashiell Hammett plays into in some of his works where he has, uh, what was it, the class he, I think, that was based on uh, some of the scandals of the Rosicrucians in the 30s. And, of course, he has, um, I don't think it was Sam Spade. I think it was the Continental Op in that one. But one of his detective characters who comes in and essentially reduces this to a materialistic explanation. But conversely, there's always been that close parallel with the horror genre, detective fiction came of age in the pulps and like true detective and those kinds of magazines concurrently at the same time, the horror genre was being worked out and weird tales and a lot of this other sort of stuff, which again is a very fantastical form of mythology, if you will. It's a dark kind of mythology. So these two genres have always sort of existed parallel even though nominally they're contrary to one another, but they also exist in the same kind of spectrum, you know, the investigation of the dark side of humanity, kind of going around at the nighttime and all of these secluded areas and all this other kind of stuff. And that's, I guess, another thing about Twin Peaks to kind of bring it back to that is why it's so interesting that that show came out at the time that it did, because I think in a lot of ways, it finally managed this merger of the detective genre and horror fiction. Of course, you could maybe point to some early examples like Angel Heart or something. But with Dale Cooper, you know, we're presented with this very different kind of detective as opposed to Sherlock Holmes, where he always looks for these kind of rationalistic ways of investigating cases. Instead, he's relying on dreams, on uh, visions and all this other kind of stuff, throwing rocks in one case or just his whole... Uh, passion for Tibet and a lot of these other things. And essentially what we would think of now as synchro mysticism, I think to guide his investigation. So again, it's sort of fascinating that you see in a lot of ways, these genres have actually become really entwined with one another in the last, I would say 30 or 40 years in a way that they absolutely were not in the early part of their history, even though, you know, they were essentially the creation of the same writer. They came of age in the same kinds of mediums and whatnot. There was always this kind of secular bent to detective fiction versus horror fiction. But now, you know, as the world is entering into this new phase, they've started to go into this convergence. I mean, who knows? But I think in a sense, this is uh, maybe a broader reflection of what is happening now with society at large, where as this really kind of secular age that emerged with the Industrial Revolution is being superseded by the digital age, I think now we are starting to go back into something where mysticism is going to be more openly acknowledged well said, yes, and I'm glad we got here because this is a, a area that I think about a lot, and I wonder how much the digital age plays into that uh, remystification, if you will. Because, um, I mean, it really never disappeared. It's always been on the outside and the fringes and insides and 
whatnot. But I, I feel like the detective character is one that is still evolving in many ways. And maybe we'll see Dale Cooper inspire future, you know, great works where this genre is explored to a deeper potential or, you know, but Steven, excellent conversation as to be expected. Your podcast is fantastic. I look forward to reading up on the entire series. The art book one is available now. Uh, So yeah, once I get my copy and I read through, and I will uh, have you back on the show to, to talk further about this because, yeah, this is a, a topic I can talk about all day. It's absolutely fascinating. And, yeah, again, I really appreciate you joining me. Thanks for your time. Well, thanks for having me on, sir. Well, I look forward to the next one. And folks listening, thank you so much for being here. Support Stephen at deviceupview.blogspot.com. His podcast, The Farm Mach 2, available wherever you listen to this show. He's got a Patreon as well, which I highly recommend. There are some incredible bonus episodes there that are only available for supporters. So really, really, uh, I cannot recommend that enough. So until next time, folks, thank you for being here. Immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the author of The Art, Book One, The Secret History of Psy War, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality. And it was a great conversation. Uh, we got into so much stuff, and because it's the holidays when this episode is coming out, I just gave you guys the whole episode, all two hours of it. If you want to sign up to support the show, that would be awesome. Uh, If you do, you get an extra 20 minutes of episode where I read some of the latest Spotify comments. We got a bunch of questions and answers posted on Spotify for people. After you listen to the show, you can answer what you think about the episode. Tell me your thoughts, and I will read them in the Patreon section of this show. And since we're in the free portion of the show, I want to give a shout out to the newest people who just signed up to support the show since I last gave shout outs. So we got to give a shout out to Dr. Fumbles, Michael C, Tom A, JJ, and I'm going to pronounce this name Kale, but it could be Callie in either way. It's Callie. I apologize for calling you Kale. It's Kale. I apologize for calling you Callie. Uh, But either way, thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for signing up. If you're listening to this, go over to Patreon and use the exclusive RSS feed where you'll hear all 20 minutes of extra episode plus all of the bonus portions of every episode that I've done plus secret episodes that are only available for supporters only episodes that have not been released to the general public. You can also go to Substack where we have articles available and an exclusive RSS feed as well. So if you don't like Patreon, you can always go over to Substack and get the same thing. There are less episodes on the RSS feed. Essentially, you'll get the whole My Family Thinks I'm Crazy feed without ads. Okay, either way, Patreon or Substack. But uh, not all of the Patreon bonus episodes are on the Substack yet. I will be uploading those 
uh, before 2024 when I have some time. And yeah, get ready, folks, for 2024. It's going to be sick. My family thinks I'm crazy. It's growing. All of you amazing people who support the show, I really appreciate it. Leave us a five-star rating and review. Let us know. Let us know what you think of the show and maybe what you want from the show in uh, 2024. Send me a miss, uh, Instagram message a message on instagram at my family thinks i'm crazy and of course while you're there go and check out our awesome sponsors the hit kit the number one way to get lit my friend garrett makes amazing doohickeys gadgets gizmos to hold whatever you're smoking on a blunt a joint a spliff keeps it safe and sound right there next to your lighter in a small convenient case that fits right in your pocket get a hit kit today you can get a custom design you can get your name on it you can even get the logo of this podcast on it you can get a bigfoot you can get a ufo whatever you want right there on your hit kit so go and check it out today and uh, use the promo code crazy to save at checkout also let's garrett know that you heard about him on the show and of course our newest sponsor Oregonite. Our friend Isaac Lazell, who was just a guest on the podcast, makes incredible Organite pieces, custom and pre-made. You can get them uh, pre-made or custom to whatever you'd like. I mean, you can get a cutting board, you can get a piece of furniture. It's really incredible stuff that he's doing. So use the promo code MFTIC and save 10% at checkout for your next Organite purchase. And, uh, with that, that's the end of the ads. Again, if you want an ad-free experience, go over and sign up on Patreon or Substack for as low as $5 a month. You get every episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast ad-free. So with that, folks, thank you for tuning in and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Extra terrestrial, trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals. But I confess too much off of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young. I be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from. In like a hundred years, we went saw a bomb before guns. Check the facts, check the Fed, check the stars. Stanley Mines was murked for a water fuel cell car. They each they own, you could stick with your old ways. But eat the rich, you drink the motherfucking Kool Aid. And I can see the red on your lip stain. White skin, blue collar, pure American made. Fuck it. Keep your blood so heritage And run the soul off the moon landed narrative Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing My folks think I'm nuts but never question the parenting Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots but it's all kinda hazy Come on, you in the net feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm un-American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy Think that I'm off in the deep end Want too many Netflix docs on the weekends But check the budget for our military defense Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason Steel beams, another 1492 And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue And you be lit off the floor, riding ain't got a clue All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed They still got bricks of cocaine to make crack Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack 
Talking like this, got kin talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up camp. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kind of hazy. Come on, you in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm on American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You can tell me that the president's an alien and it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Anything out, so 